Welcome to Riffs on Riffs, where we explore the surprising connections between songs past and present and share the fascinating stories that make music a universal language. I'm Joe Watson. I'm here with my co-host, Toby Braswell. What's up, my friend? Man, I am so glad that we are doing this right now. I I, I cannot express to you how happy I am. Yeah, it's been a minute since we did an episode, largely due to the, the challenges of the current pandemic, amongst other things. But we have been using this time wisely and are happy to share some exciting Riffs news with you all. That's right. With this episode, we are officially kicking off season two of Riffs on Riffs. Now, we've been digesting the listener feedback from our previous 40 plus episodes and are excited to announce a couple of new updates. First, many listeners have expressed a desire to hear more of the songs that we discuss on the show. Now, since we don't want every episode to be like four hours long. Yeah, that would be long. (laughs) That's a long, man. It's very long. We're going to create public Spotify playlists for each episode. So just search for Riffs on Riffs on Spotify to find each episode's playlist for your listening pleasure. Well, we have also heard that the storytelling is what keeps you all coming back. So we have adjusted the format to feature even more of the crazy connections and all the interesting backstories around your favorite tracks. So with each episode, we're going to take you on an adventure ride through musical history. Doesn't that sound fun? An adventure ride. (laughs) You can then dive deeper into the tracks we discuss via the Spotify playlists. So what do you say, man? You ready to do it or what? I'm ready. I'm chomping at the bit. All right. So tell me how we're going to kick off season two. Well, here's what we're going to do. We are going to build a musical bridge from the coasts of Cameroon to the invitation-only party scene of 70s-era New York City. We will learn how Michael Jackson flat-out stole a hook for one of his biggest hits, and he got away with it because, well, he's Michael Jackson. As always, a common thread is music, and in this case, we're going to start with the song Soul Mokasa by Manu Dubango. From there, the easy connections are to Michael Jackson and then Rihanna, but there are so many more riffs to be had along the way. So join us as we unravel the tangled thread that also connects the Fugees, the Outsiders, Eminem, D12, Quincy Jones, and his daughters. And we'll also chat about that time that Tupac and Michael Jackson threw down. What? And you know what? Eddie Murphy <laughs> might even show up. Are we coming to America? I'm pretty sure Prince Akeem was from Zamunda, not Cameroon. But regardless, it all sounds really good. About as good as that band, Sexual Chocolate. Sexual oh Chocolate. Okay. All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, sex- <laughs> well, it's a long trip from Africa. So let's head to Cameroon to get this party started. Tell me a little bit more about Manu Dibango. Absolutely. So Manu was a songwriter and sax player that grew up with a Yabasi father and Douala mother. The Douala influence can be found in the name of the first feature track, Soul Makasa. Makasa loosely translates as I dance in Douala. And this is a song that definitely makes you want to get up and cut the rug. Mm-hmm. It's also a song that gave us the iconic phrase, Mama say, Mama sa, Mama kusa, which is kind of his fun way of making a play on the word Makasa. Makasa became a very popular style of funk and dance music in Africa. It also allowed Dabango to become the first African to have a top 40 U.S. hit. Soul Makasa reached number 35 in the Billboard Hot 100, but somehow the song always seems to have maintained a certain sleeper hit status to it. Yeah, it certainly wasn't a hit out of the gate. In fact, it wasn't even the A-side of the single. The (laughs) A-side was written as an anthem for Cameroon's national soccer team. So we owe the success of Soul Makasa in part to some crate digging by New York disc jockey David Mancuso. 
Now, Tob, I know you, you're a crate digger, right? So what's one of your all-time favorite finds? First off, let me say this. If I have a team of people that love and care about me and they've picked the song that I that we're going to rock with, the A-side and the B-side, and it turns out that the B-side is a lot more popular than the A-side, I got two words for all those people. You're fired. All of y'all. Go. go. You got to go. I think you, you are go. underestimating the impact of the Cameroon national soccer team. That's all. I think you're, just, you're missing the boat a little bit there, buddy. Well, back to crate digging. So one of my recent crate digging experiences led me to find a sample from Aretha Franklin's song called One Step Ahead. So that song was actually sampled for the most deaf hit called Miss Fat Booty. Okay, oh. and if, if you like hip-hop that tells a story and you haven't heard the song, let me tell you, you're in for a treat. Make sure you check it out on the Riffs playlist after this episode. So, Joe, I, I know you got one, right? I know you have one. I'm still tying all those threads together. It's, uh, <laughs> it's hurting my brain a little bit. So, yeah, actually, there's a really awesome antique shop down the street from my office. I recently bought 250 records in bulk one day, just hoping to find some gems. And I just want to say that Back in the day, man, they put out some very interesting albums. I've got a lot of... Uh, so in this whole batch was these this group of Sing Along With Mitch vinyl, which I, I have no idea who Mitch is. No, wait, no. wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean Mitch Miller, producer, TV host, former head of A&R of Columbia Records? Sing Along With Mitch was like a hit show on NBC in the early 60s. Wow. You know what, Tobe? I'm going to take your word on that. But, <laughs> but what I did find interesting is literally on the booklet for every page of every record, there's this exact same picture of Mitch's head. So, so apparently, <laughs> apparently he really liked himself, too. Anyway, let us get back to the crate digging of David Mancuso. So Mancuso was a pioneer of the house party. And in the early 70s... I like him already, he, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, definitely a friend of ours, for sure. Definitely. <laughs> so in the early 70s, he would hold invitation-only events at a place that was known as The Loft. Mm, Doesn't that have a nice ring to it? It does. The I want to go to The Loft. I want to go to The Villa. If I was going to make one, it'd be The Villa, not The Loft. We should do that. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it was all legal because he didn't sell any food or booze. Whoa. You know what? This just sounded a lot less interesting all of a sudden. It does, you said house party, but this, this doesn't sound like much of a party. Like, no food, no booze. Flag on the play. So, listeners, you can tell someone's missing his live sports right now. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, someone's uh, definitely can missing say his they have sports. live sports, but it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Not during the pandemic, they don't. I tell you that right now. <laughs> That's right. Well, he did have one of the best high-fidelity sound systems in existence at the time, and he made sure to curate the music to do that system justice. So one day, he was hunting through a West Indian record store and found a copy of Soul Makasa. It was a hit at the loft, and soon it made its way onto New York radio station WBLS. Well, from there, it didn't take long before all the copies in the city were sold out. But here's the thing. So there were so few copies available, no one could find it, right? And what do we do when demand outpaces supply? We raise the prices. <laughs> Somebody spent some time paying attention in <laughs> economics class. Very good, sir. That's right. That's right. Yes, sound business strategy. But in this case, there were a couple dozen other groups that just said, you know what? This is popular. Let's go record it and release it ourselves. So yeah, there was like dozens of recorded versions of Soma Casa out there. Wow. Well, thankfully, later in 1972, Atlantic Records licensed the original Manu Dubango version from his French record label, Fiesta. Now, can we back up a second here? 
<laughs> Did you just French. say it was a French label called Fiesta? Am I missing yes. something here? That's exactly that's exactly what what. what do you remember I said. that little Ford car, the Ford Fiesta? Do you remember that yeah. thing? I do remember yeah. that. You I didn't have one, that. did you? No, my friend did though. My friend yeah. did. I mean, I'm not, yeah. I'm not. You know, I'm just curious. Anyway, <laughs> please continue. So the French record label Fiesta and the track actually climbed the charts. All right, thanks to Atlantic Records. So what's crazy is that because of the covers, because of all the covers of that song, there was also versions of Soul Mikasa by the band Afrique that actually charted on the Hot 100 at the same time. That's wow, nuts. That is same crazy. song on the same yeah. chart. That's crazy. Right. I, I'd be making a phone call and be like, hey, so where'd you get? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how the, any of this is legal. But regardless, Soul Mikasa ends up being nominated for a couple of Grammys in 1974. And, you know, life is good for Manu Dibango. He keeps releasing albums, he's touring, he's collaborating with countless other artists. And then one day in 1982, he's just chilling in his Paris apartment, maybe having a siesta, not a fiesta, <laughs> listening to the radio. And this little song called Wanna Be Starting Something comes across the airwaves. All right, it's a funky little ditty in its own right, and Manu is enjoying it, right? Then a few minutes into the track, he hears Michael Jackson reciting his now famous lines, Mama say, Mama sa, Mumakusa, and then his phone starts to ring. So what's crazy is that all his friends were listening to the same radio station <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> no board games back home. There, okay, there wasn't anything it. else to do, Toad. We didn't have Netflix. We didn't have Spotify. I'm telling you. So his phone starts ringing with his friends and relatives offering him congratulations on having the king of pop sing his song. Yeah, you know what? There's, there seems to be one big problem here. Michael never cleared the sample. In mm, fact, mm. he never even contacted Manu about using it. Now, look, we weren't anywhere near the level of legal rigmarole. I like that word, rigmarole, in 1982 <laughs> that we have now. But Still, you just couldn't go steal someone's song. Although, I guess maybe you could. You just cover it and put it on the Hot 100 at the same time. I don't know. I'm, I'm very confused. Manu went to the store, bought Michael Jackson's Thriller album, one of millions, right? Yeah, right, <laughs> and was, right. <laughs> and was puzzled to see that Michael Jackson was listed as the sole author of Want to Be Starting Something. Well, I'm pretty sure his next call was to his lawyers. So this is what you call a Gwen Stefani moment. I mean, no mm -hmm. doubt that he called his lawyers, oh right? My. No doubt. Really? No <laughs> diggity, no doubt? Could it be a... Could it, okay. So Michael admitted he stole the hook, and the two worked out a financial agreement. All is well on the licensing front, at least for the next quarter century. Oh, I smell foreshadowing. Indeed, indeed. We've talked about how many times Soul Mikasa has been covered. Let's talk about some other times it's been sampled, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. So let's start with this one. You remember an album by the Fugees called The Score? Oh my God. Yes, yeah. I do. I wore my copy out. We also covered this one in a previous Riffs episode. And I'm guessing we have some Soul Makasa connection going on we in here. We do. You are correct, sir. So there's a track on, on The Score called Cowboys. I know you're oh, a fan yeah. of it, right? It yeah, samples, yeah, yeah. It samples Soul Makasa and it introduces us to, to Pace One, Young Z, and Rodiga from the New Jersey hip hop collective, The Outsiders. Oh, Outsiders, man, it's definitely a dope, dope underground group. I'm forever grateful for their existence. I'm a big fan of Pace One, and I love Raw Digger. She mm -hmm. would later go on to join forces with Busta Rhymes, and they came out with some great music. Yeah, big fan. 
Yeah, so Wyclef was a huge fan too. And he said that they were, the Outsiders were one of the few competitors to the Fugees at the time. So he's like, you know what? <laughs> if you can't beat them, join them, right? So right, right. he wanted to get everybody on the same track. Well, somewhere along the way, they managed to offend Tupac. Now, to be fair, it really wasn't hard to offend Tupac in those days. Yeah, that is a truth. Well, in this case, these lines from Wyclef did the trick. Here, here we go. Ready? Prepare yep, to be offended, Toby. Okay, okay I'm, I'm here. Here we go. Quote, rappers want to be actors, so they play the Jesse James call-up card. End quote. Oh, no, no, you didn't end it. That's it? <laughs> that's, that's it. That's, that's the line that started all the beef? Uh-huh. I mean, it, look, so Tupac was acting, sure, but so was Lauren Hill from the Fugees. I mean, she had a recurring role in As the World Turns, you know, that soap opera. Uh-huh. And, you know, and Which I just I know heard about that from of. friends. <laughs> yeah, we, or so you've heard about that soap opera, right? <laughs> so I've heard, so I've heard. <laughs> and Lauren Hill was actually also in Sister Act 2. I know I have it downstairs, so I just saw it last week. <laughs> Look, if you're Tupac, you can never be sure, right? So just in case it was about him, what do you do? Toby, you make a diss track. So, of course, he did when we ride on our enemies. And, well, you know what? We can't share of any of what he said on that track on a family show. No, but you can listen to it on our Spotify playlist for this episode. If you're old enough, of course. If you're not, then you know, make sure you get right. your parents' permission. Rental discretion <laughs> is advised. All right, so I've got a little ironic tidbit for you, Tobe. Although it's kind of like Alanis in her song, Ironic. I don't know if it's really ironic or if it's just an interesting <laughs> tidbit. I'm well not sure. done, sir. Well yeah. done. We are, we are covering the entire globe. You just went to Canada, my friend. That was beautiful. <laughs> That's right. It's true. It's true. All right, if you've got some, some irony for me, hit me. Okay, so the Fuji's album, The Score, was released on the exact same day as Tupac's equally epic album, All Eyes on Me. So there you go. There's wow. another connection between the two. Maybe not irony, but, you know, interesting, at least. Will you give me that? Yeah, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. So I've got a little bit more irony for you. Ooh. All right. Give it to me. You remember how Mano de Bongo was just chilling in Paris when he heard Wannabe starting something and the interpolation of his soul Macasa track? Yes, sir. His little siesta and his fiesta. <laughs> right, right. So it turned. every time I hear this track now, I'm going to be thinking about it. <laughs> Siesta and his fiesta. You are welcome. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Well, it turns out that one of the other songs off the score elicited the same response from another international artist. Can you name for me the second best selling artist out of Ireland? Ooh, Ireland, huh? We really are globetrotting. Um, Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to assume you say second best because, look, you two has to be at the top of the list, right? So. Right. um, All right. Let me guess. Ireland, Ireland. Uh. Sinead O'Connor. Very good guess, but no. Oh. All right. Well, I'm going to go with the group then. How about the Cranberries? No, sir. Mm. One more guess. Give me one more. One more. Uh, one more. One more. Uh, we'll go different, different genre. The Pogues. No again. And you are Man. out of guesses. I failed. Try. I need a lifeline. <laughs> so you forgot about a certain Irish woman that goes by the name of Enya. Oh, my gosh. Anya. Yeah, I totally forgot. I feel bad. I'm sorry, Anya. Okay, how does this all relate back to the Fugees? So, Anya released her self-titled debut album in 1987, which was later named The Celts for re-release in 1992. It contained the song Bodica, which the Fugees sampled for the song Ready or Not from the score. 
Well, problem is neither they nor Sony bothered to clear the sample. This seems to be a, a, an epidemic. A reoccurring? Uh -huh. <laughs> a pandemic, so they, maybe? A pandemic. <laughs> there you go. So they, I thought this only happened once every 100 years. Apparently, it was more common than we thought. Nope. Well, nope, they never nope. asked for permission. Nothing, right? So the story goes that Enya, she's out on tour. She's in Australia at the time. And she hears the Ready or Not track. And she's like, huh, that's my song. This, this does not please me. Right, right. Well, it was an open and shut case of copyright infringement. And Inya's team was insisting that Ready or Not be removed from the score. Sony Music, however, had an inkling that the track was going to be a hit and didn't want to take it off the album. Hmm. Well, so that's thankfully. A, that's a good team yeah. right there. That's right? A, that's a, yeah, right. We've got a standoff <laughs> coming along. Well, here's where Enya herself sort of steps in. She's like, okay. Her biggest concern was that the Fugees were gangster rappers and Frankly, she just didn't want to be associated with those kinds of messages. Well, Nikki Ryan, Enya's manager, had a daughter who was like, no, no, don't worry about it. As far as I know, the Fugees, they are anti-crime and anti-drugs, and their message is quite positive. Well, after Enya found this out, she requested that there be a more amicable solution to the entire issue. So Sony agreed to place stickers on future pressings of the album, giving thanks and credit to Enya. There was also an undisclosed financial settlement that I'm sure helped smooth things over. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that this all worked out, but, but I honestly I wonder if this could go in a different way in a hurry if Enya had listened to the score in its entirety, like the whole Cowboys track, for example. Look, I, it's, not, it's not gangster rap, right? But it certainly does its fair share of promoting guns and violence on that song. You do make a good point. The song did talk about guns and violence, but I think it did it in a way that said that, you know, a lot of rappers act like they're tough guys when they're really not. So, but that could just be my interpretation. You know, one thing that isn't debatable is that Lauren and Rod Digger had the best verse on the song. Mm -hmm. And I wish those two did more music together. It was awesome. Oh, that would have been cool. That would have been very cool. But alas, I guess it was not meant to be. And speaking of things that weren't meant to be... The song Wanna Be Startin' Something was composed and co-produced by Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones, right? Well, it was actually meant, believe this or not, for his sister LaToya. Wow. So apparently the song Can you imagine was her about singing her that, by the way? Like <laughs> No. No. Yeah. Stop. Okay. <laughs> Stop anyway. it. You want you must want to be starting something if you if you want me to think about <laughs> oh, that. Oh man, well done. <laughs> so apparently the song was about her rocky relationship with her sisters in law. Now, when I found that out, all I could think about was, man, forget the Fuji's. Latoya is the real gangster, all right? She's putting out a song <laughs> that means she I want, really I want does that on I just want that on tape. Latoya is the real gangster. Like, Latoya that's, is that's the real epic line. <laughs> Joe, she is. She's putting out a song right now. She doesn't care how bad, after they listen to it, she doesn't care about how bad that Thanksgiving, Christmas, <laughs> Easter, any type of family gathering that happens after. She doesn't care about any of those times and how awkward she's going to make it. Come on. Do you see what Latoya ended up doing? She clearly <laughs> did not care what she was saying about the family. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Well, you know what? Knowing that little piece of information, it certainly gives a new meaning to the lyrics, right? So, absolutely. You think you think maybe Michael, being a good brother, went to Latoya and said, "Hey, look, sis, <laughs> I'm just going to keep this song for myself so that you can enjoy the holidays." Right, right, right. I'm sure it was like, you know, let me take the burden off of you of having a hit song. I'm sure she was really appreciative. Latoya still sings that song at her concerts, so at least she has that. I didn't even know she had concerts. So, you know, good. <laughs> at, least she, for that at least she too. has that. She has that too. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right. Well, we can't talk about Michael Jackson without talking about his other talented siblings, right? So, all right, Tope, can you name all nine Jackson children? And I'm going to give you bonus points if you can get them in order. Okay. So that's an easy question. The answer is no. I I cannot do that. All right. (laughs) But I will give you the names in no particular order of a couple of them. I might be missing a few, but let's let's try it out. So I got Michael, Janet... Mm-hmm. Jermaine, Tito, nice. Latoya, Marlon. Going deep. I like it. Reby? Reby. Yep. Yep. Reby. That's all I got. Oh. Side note. Is it Reby or Reby? I think it's Reby. Okay. All right. So let's see. That's, uh, let's see. My, Marlon. You got seven. That's good. That's good. It's not bad. Right, let, me, so, let me think. Uh, who'd you forget? You forgot Randy. I don't know how you forget about Randy. <laughs> and uh and Jackie. Now but, now that you say it, I can't I can't forget I can't remember you can't uh, <laughs> uh now, I don't believe I forgot that one either now that you say it. So oh, yeah. <laughs> well anyway, it's a big family. So let me ask you another bit of Jackson trivia. So of the three Jackson sisters, who was the first to go gold? So my guess, no lifeline needed, gotta be Janet. Final answer. Mm, Should have gone with the lifeline, sir. Dang. It was Reby. Her, uh, her album, Centipede. This is sort of a technicality. She was the first one to go gold with her own album. Mm-hmm. True, true, true. Okay, I see what you're saying. So she went gold. She's the first to go gold with her own album. I had no idea. This crazy. It actually brings up another question. Why doesn't anyone ever talk more about Reby? I mean, I saw the video for this track, and although her dancing skills are seriously in question, <laughs> she does... <laughs> And I mean seriously, in question. <laughs> she does have a nice voice. She did have Look, a nice you voice. You can't She's... have, I mean, you've seen Michael, you've seen Janet. Not everybody can, you know, if you're going to put all that dance talent in two people, then somebody's got to suffer, right? Man, I'm telling <laughs> you, and, and, and suffer I did. <laughs> well, let's take, let's take a brief step back, because I mentioned that she was the first to do it, you know, with her own stuff. But technically, back to LaToya, she was actually the first to go gold because <laughs> she co-wrote a song called Reggae Night for artist Jimmy Cliff. I think that went gold in like 1983. So a year before. So another crowning achievement for LaToya. Right. Well, that's cool. But something tells me that doesn't explain why Reby is oftentimes forgotten. Well, that, my friend, might have to do with the fact that she made an effort to distance herself from all of that Jackson family drama. 18 years old, right? So she goes and tells her family that she wants to marry her childhood love Nathaniel Brown in November of 1968. And it just seemed like she felt she had an obligation to get into the music business while she was young and she didn't want to let starting a family get in the way. And, you know, here's another shocker. Dad was upset, right? Joe was upset. So upset that for the wedding, he actually refused to walk her down the aisle. That's seriously a shame. It's really unfortunate. That's a, that's a big shame right there. But, you know, sometimes that's how it is with family. There's just some things that, that people just can't get past. And I did want to mention that sometimes a band or a music group can operate like a family. And when groups break up, the repercussions can be just as serious. Mm. Okay. So speaking of that, one of your favorite MCs is Eminem, right? So he was affiliated with The Outsiders. In fact, they collaborated on a track called Mikasa that interpolates Manu Dibango's version. And Eminem and The Outsiders also collaborated frequently with a Detroit-based group called D12. So look, Eminem has this great career. He's multiple hits, more than, what, 220 million records sold or something. None of his bandmates have done anywhere close to that. So Here's a question, right? If we're talking about family, 
does he owe anybody anything? Has he has he done what he should to help bring up any other artists? Well, you know, I can say this. Eminem certainly has tried to develop artists. I mean, after all, he did sign 50 Cent, which was major. Oh, that was true. a big deal. Yep, yep, yep. He also signed Slaughterhouse, which was an underground MC supergroup composed of Joe Budden, Crooked Eye, Joel Ortiz, and Royce the Five Nine. With that all being said, it doesn't really seem to be his forte when it comes to developing talent. I talked to my music partner, Brandon, and to, just to kind of get his thoughts on the subject. All right. So, what, yeah, what's the scoop here? He basically said it's probably one of the best developers of talent. That award would probably go to Dr. Dre. He's probably the best. Mm. After all, he worked with the DOC, worked with Ice Cube, the Dog Pound, Snoop, and Eminem. I mean, that's a crazy list of talent right there. That is yes. <laughs> and personally, yes. I would totally agree with that. But... You think more so than like even, you know, Diddy? Diddy's a good one too. Diddy's a good one. I mean, could you imagine going to a house party with those guys I just mentioned? I mean, how crazy <laughs> of a time would that be? I mean, Let I'm me sure guess. Be- I, I think there would be food and booze and high fidelity <laughs> sound systems. So, you know, uh, it, it might it be a good time. That's, that's, that's the villa the right there. <laughs> that's the villa. That's the All villa. Right. Well, well, speaking of parties... And crazy stories. <laughs> Can I? I'm going to tell you one. Ready? So I'm going to tell you about that time that Michael Jackson got in a fight with Tupac. Already sounds ridiculous. Go ahead. <laughs> Are you talking about like a fight? Fight? Are we talking like yeah. fisticuffs or what? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, you know this is at least according to legend. There's this guy by the name of Bo Capone who I don't know. I have no idea who this is, but apparently he was heavily involved in the West Coast scene back in the day. And he tells this crazy story. It's fascinating, really, that connects a lot of these artists together. I have no idea if any of it's true, so we're just... Go ahead. I want to hear it. (laughs) So, well, all right. What do we do know is true? We knew that Michael Jackson worked closely with Quincy Jones. And because of that, Michael also, you know, became close with Quincy's family. And apparently he even became godfather to Quincy's daughter, Kadada. So, Tupac... Dated Kadada back in the day, right? I mean, I'm he pretty did. sure you, that okay, yeah, that was the right. thing, right? So, yeah, so we're setting the scene here, right? As the story goes, there's this party, and Kadada was sitting on Michael's lap, family like since they'd grown up together, so you know nothing to it. Well, so Tupac shows up to the party, and he oh, doesn't boy. really know what's going on, right? But he sees his girl sitting on another guy's lap, in this case, Michael Jackson's lap, and you know what? As we've already said earlier, Tupac is not one to to overlook any perceived slight or beef. So he's not happy, and he gets in Michael's face. And so, and this is where it gets good, right? So they're eyeball to eyeball, and then Pac shoves Michael, and Michael rears back and lets his fist fly and, like, cold cocks him. And then they're, like, quickly separated, (laughs) and cooler heads prevail. But, yeah, so allegedly there was the time that Michael hit Tupac, yeah, at a party. So I I just want you to let those visuals sink in for a minute. Wow. Right? So Tupac had to be... Tupac had to be, what, 20-something at yeah, this time? Yeah, they were young. Yep. Kadada had to be, how old do you think? She probably know. Probably around the same age. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's nuts. That's nuts. <laughs> that's that's completely crazy. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it's a good story nonetheless. Well, that's nuts. I mean, here we got Fuji's, Biggie, Michael Jackson. I mean, who didn't Pac have beef with? It's crazy to me. Well, I do think it'd be good for us to get back to our featured artist, Manu, because he would have beef of his own due to someone else sampling his music without permission. Ah, you must be referring to Rihanna when she sampled Michael Jackson's song for her hit Don't Stop the Music in 2007. 
Well, at this point, Manu apparently has learned like, hey, if somebody steals your song, you should sue them. So this time he sued both her and Michael. Well, you know what? Apparently, when Rihanna asked Michael Jackson for the permission, he just approved the request and he never bothered to contact Manu in the first place. So Rihanna thought she was acting legally. And once again, Michael was like, eh, you know, whatever. That's insane. That's insane. It's kind of like lending out your, your neighbor's lawnmower without asking. I mean, like, it's not even your lawnmower. It's your neighbor's lawnmower. Like, oh, yeah, just go and take it. Just go and take it. Here, you here's, the, it? here's the garage code. Go and take it. He's, it's right there. <laughs> well, all of that shame cost a pretty penny. Domingo's attorneys brought the case before a court in Paris and demanded 500,000 euros in damages, in addition to Sony, BMG, EMI, and Warner Music all being barred from receiving... Mama say, Mama saw related income until the matter was resolved. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that paperwork. Listen, you don't receive <laughs> any money from Mama say, yeah. Mama saw, okay? I hope Mama say, I'm sorry. Mama, okay, <laughs> Mama's going to try to say we can get past this. But Mama is, is definitely saying you can't get paid if we yeah. don't get this resolved. Dang. Well, right. It, it was resolved, though, unfortunately, not... Uh, not in Mama's, Mama's or Manu's favor. The courts decided that he had essentially given up the future rights when he had cut his first deal back in the day with Michael. So basically the suit was dismissed. And, you know, sadly, on an even more tragic note, Manu was lost to COVID-19 earlier this year. So may he rest in peace. Rest in peace for sure. And with all of that, I think we're out of time, my friend. So can you tell everyone what all we discussed? Absolutely. So we started the episode by discussing the hit song Soul Makasa by Manu Dubongo and then traveled overseas to see why Michael Jackson's always want to be starting something. We then went to New Jersey to hang out with the Fugees and the Outsiders and then talked a little bit more about the Jackson siblings and ended with Rihanna, who won't let anyone stop the music but almost let someone stop her from getting paid for her music. (laughs) And I think that sums it up. Yeah. Wow. That's a fantastic job there, Tope. Well done. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our very first episode of Season 2 of Riffs on Riffs. Be sure to listen to the Spotify playlist that accompanies this episode, and please give us your thoughts on the new format via social. You can find us at Riffs on Riffs on your favorite channels. And until next time, thank you for listening. Huzzah. Keep listening. Thanks for listening to Riffs on Riffs. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on your Apple Podcast app. Riffs on Riffs is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Producer, audio engineer, Eric Coltnow. And assistant producer, Declan Roars. You can find Riffs on Riffs anywhere and everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. I'm Toby Braswell. And I'm your co-host, Joe Watson. Thank you for listening to Riffs on Riffs. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. 
Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.